Welcome to the Dr. Bub's Performance Podcast, giving you the latest evidence-based research and cutting-edge insights for elite mental and physical performance. He's connecting you directly with the world's leading experts and coaches. Here's your host, Dr. Bubs. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to Season 3 of the Dr. Bubs Performance Podcast, where, as always, you will find evidence-based insights from world-leading experts to inform your practice and your clients. All right, I'm excited today to be speaking with a very highly regarded sports scientist who's worked with many of the best of the best in endurance sport and exercise physiology. Dr. Andy Sparks, PhD, a reader in exercise physiology in the Department of Sport and Physical Activity, where he's a postgraduate research contact and leads the Sport and Exercise Nutrition Pathway at Edge Hill University in the UK, is on the show. In this episode, Andy discusses the early days and his research of high-fat, low-carb, pre-exercise fueling in endurance athletes, measurement error, and why it really matters. He'll talk about his work in beetroot, dietary nitrates, endurance performance, and some of the potential wins along the way. His current work in delayed release applications of sodium bicarb. Is it the future? He'll also talk about personalization of dosing, as well as the fueling practices in ultra-endurance athletes and some surprising findings on what type of practitioners have the most evidence-based insights. A lot more that Andy dives into in this episode. Really uh, fascinating and insightful talk for someone who is obviously uh, a keen problem solver and an expert generalist in his own right. Um, as usual, if you want more, uh, you can find the links in the podcast summary in the show notes at drbubs.com forward slash podcast. And if you're interested in more on this topic, then you don't have to circle back too far. Go back to season three, episode 23 with Mr. Zach Bitter, ultra endurance champion on ultra marathon prep, fueling endurance and race day mindset as well as Season 3, Episode 14, with Dr. Samuel Impey on endurance athletes, periodized nutrition, and train low strategies. Terrific. This episode is sponsored by my new book, Peak, the new science of athletic performance that is revolutionizing sports. You can check out all the expert blurbs and insights at athleteevolution.org. That's athleteevolution.org. And we've also been getting some great feedback on social media from readers. Recently, we have at Superior Frakes writes in, definitely add at Dr. Bubbs' peak, the new science of athletic performance that is revolutionizing sports to your reading collection. The quotes and literature cited is hot. Cheers for that. And thanks for everyone else who's sending in their uh, tweets and, and posts with the hashtag GoPeak. Much appreciated. And finally, this episode is also sponsored by our good friends at Totem Sport. Totem Sport is the world's only 100% natural supplement. Totem Sport is the only drink supplement that contains all 78 naturally occurring minerals and trace elements. The research on ocean mineral water is ramping up, a recent study highlighting its major promise as the optimal rehydrating strategy over spring water and other sports drinks. Totem Sport is the evolution of hydration, the world's only 100% natural sport drink, tested and approved by Informed Sport and Informed Choice. 
you can use the promo code BUBS10, B-U-B-B-S-10, at checkout and save 10% at totemsport.com and defy the norm. All right, on to the show, Season 3, Episode 26. Enjoy. Andy, thanks so much for taking the time today. Are you welcome? Thanks for having me. Fantastic. Well, listen, can we uh, perhaps kick off this conversation here today by you telling listeners a little bit more about your background and how you got into research? Okay, so uh, um, I was uh, an absolutely average undergraduate student in um, sport and exercise science at John Moores <laughs> a long time ago, between 95 and 98. Um, and then I finished my undergraduate degree and had no idea what to do next. Um, and then as a result of that, I just kind of happened across. Uh, this is going to sound pretty much like I'm dropping names left, right and centre, but I guess it's the Go reality. Right ahead. It, I guess it's the reality of where I was and at, and at, and at the time I was there. So um, Tom Riley obviously had done some work with um, with George Brooks and George Brooks had come to Liverpool to uh, to deliver um, um, a, a, a symposium um, and uh, it, it happened in the middle of the summer it was 1998 it would have been and uh, I bumped into somebody who was already doing a PhD and they said what are you doing and I said well not very much at the moment and they said well they're, they're advertising for some PhD positions Would you know why don't you go for one I didn't have any idea about a research idea I had no ideas uh, about what to do but I kind of liked the idea and, and to be honest I had nothing else to do so it's one of those kind of chance happenings really that was kind of in the right place at the right time um and then i ended up uh, going to this interview um and then later the same day tom riley had offered me a gta position so it's a um, graduate teaching assistant's role which was to do a part-time phd alongside with um a part-time teaching position and then a teaching at the same time uh, and then to do kind of make ends meet at the time um, I had two or three other jobs at the same time so I was pretty busy um, and I'll be honest in the first year or two I wasn't particularly studious <laughs> uh, I have a I have a, a, I have a brilliant um, uh, letter from my my director of studies at the time Don McLaren and it says uh it's an annual report and it's one line. It says, no significant um, progress has been made this year. And that's probably because I played far too much golf uh, and didn't really do much work. Nice, get the uh, handicap down. That, yeah, I got the handicap down a bit. Uh, but once I got past that bit, I kind of realised I'd spent far too much time not doing anything and realised it was probably about time I got on with something. And so I ended up uh, doing a PhD, uh, which looked at multi-sports, so duathlon. Um, we messed about with some environmental temperature stuff, looking at kind of lukewarm temperature, I guess, 10 degrees to 20 degrees and 30 degree environmental temperatures. Uh, and then we also messed about with giving people different types of meals prior to uh, to doing that type of performance. Um, and I guess one of the things that perhaps we didn't measure too well or didn't really consider at that time was this idea of test retest reliability we weren't very good at that at the time everyone's become a bit more uh, focused on that to ensure that very very small performance improvements can be reasonably measured um, but I think at the time those sorts of things were conveniently overlooked and we had 
know, quite a rudimentary understanding or appreciation of what it meant to to change someone's performance. I think things have changed considerably since then. Uh, and then I did a load of uh, teaching jobs. So I worked at the University of Westminster, which was a great job, but I didn't really like London very much. And I did lots of traveling to get there. Didn't do much research there, just lots of teaching. Uh, and then I moved back to the northwest of the UK and worked at the University of Cumbria. Got a little bit of research done there, but not very much. It wasn't really the focus in, uh, at the time. It certainly is now. They've, they've moved on quite considerably. Um, and I did an awful lot of teaching there. Uh, and then I moved to um, to Edge Hill, where I am currently. And I've been there I'm in my 11th year uh, at Edge Hill. Um, and it's great because it just let me do the research I want. It's convenient because some of my... Um, my work colleagues and collaborators are still at John Moore's, so um, it's a, a fairly convenient location geographically. So yeah, absolutely, and very nicely. Yeah, and if we can if we can circle back to some of that early work you mentioned previously, um, obviously this was the early days of you know manipulating diet, low carb, high fat in terms of endurance performance. Can you yeah. uh, talk a little bit about uh, you know what you guys did and what you found back then? Okay, so we, we kind of, in terms of the diet studies, we, we kind of moved on. Um, we moved on just looking at the, the pre-exercise meal. Um, at the time, we kind of developed the work that Helena Whitley had done, um, and she worked with, actually, on those publications, Keith Frame is, is on those papers. So he was at the Oxford Metabolism Lab, um, and he's obviously one of the people that developed the quite widely used uh, stoichiometric equations to, to calculate fat and carbohydrate oxidation rates from gas analysis data. Uh, they got moved on a little bit more and developed a bit further by Eukendrup uh, and Wallace after that. But you know, those are the sorts of uh, equations which are used quite extensively. So mm-hmm. we were kind of working from a fairly sound uh, good quality uh, background and at the time people were kind of messing about with this idea that if you gave you know if you had a, a reasonably reasonable lead in you could maybe habituate people to to kind of high fat or um, uh, high fat meals so it was really an attempt to see whether or not there would be that much of a performance change Helena Whitley's paper from I think from 98 she did a preload uh, um, I think it was 65% VO2 max for an hour and a half, and then she did a 16-kilometer time trial. Um, and she didn't really find much happening. And um, I kind of wanted to strip out the, the preload and, and maybe just do a time trial. Um, we obviously made it a bit more complicated than just doing a cycling or a running time trial. We, we put in a duathlon performance, which um, which made things a little bit longer and a little bit more awkward to do but mm. uh, but again we didn't really show much was happening and and uh, with that just that pre-exercise meal because the exercise wasn't massively long we, we didn't really show we showed that the oxidation rates were manipulated quite considerably uh, when you give a different fuel which is fairly obvious really you know if you've got more carbohydrate available you'll use it preferentially anyway um, and we so we showed those sorts of mini, uh, those sorts of responses both in blood metabolites and uh, and also the hormonal response that you get to that type of exercise. But but we didn't find any performance changes at all, even compared to overnight continued overnight fasting and then a, then a five k 
5k run 30k cycle and a five another 5k run so you know um we're getting into the realms of where the carbohydrate perhaps should be a little bit more beneficial if you look at some of the stuff that um that javier gonzalez has done recently where he's manipulating people's breakfasts and shows yeah. that actually that might be quite a beneficial thing to do not necessarily from a muscle glycogen perspective but it might be topping up liver glycogen uh, and so you know i think i'll be honest you know i don't know how many people would be that this honest but i'm not sure our performance criteria there was that good um and i think when you get better trained individuals and also you get single performances rather than those sorts of multi-sport things i think you can probably drill down to smaller performance changes but i've got no real plans i'll be honest to revisit some of those things i think if you for sure the things i'm up to at the moment i was going to say i mean you're they're, they're, your interests obviously lie in endurance sport and running and cycling. And so, you know, in, in terms of moving forward from, from your PhD into your time at Edge Hill, what are some of the things that then, uh, you know, areas of, of research and, and things that you guys were looking into? Yeah, so I'm quite interested in this idea about measurement error across the board, really, not just in terms of performance. I've published a few things on the measurement error of you know, time trial cycling performance. Uh, and, then, and then also on um, kind of measuring anything really i think if you uh, i think perhaps it's uh, it's all it's a help but also a hindrance to be a generalist in a very specialist area mm-hmm. i think um i think you don't get necessarily brilliantly known for being a generalist because you have your finger in lots of lots of pies all over the place uh, and if you look at the people who are really eminent in our uh, in our field i think they tend to have a real specialism alongside kind of some sub interests but i'm very much not in that camp uh, i'm a bit of an exception to the rule really I, I kind of i'm interested in perhaps too many things uh, but one of those things is kind of this idea about measurement error and test and retest reliability and that kind of ties in not just kind of looking at things like urine osmometry which we the graham close and i did a study on quite a few years ago now uh, it's not just those sorts of things it, it's it's this idea about about can we actually accurately is that the right word perhaps not but can we definitively measure performance i think that's quite an interesting thing because i think it's one of the most difficult things for us to do yeah i mean it's a fascinating uh, you know you mentioned the generalism and obviously you're really a topical area at the moment with uh, david epstein's new book range and yeah know, the, the, benef- got, the benefits I've got, of- I've got that on my list to buy for my holiday i'll be honest yeah, I was going to say, I mean, your, your, your progression through your career sounds uh, quite similar to a lot of the areas that he sort of touches on. And it, it is quite interesting to look at these, being able to find solutions to problems and particularly complex problems. And so, you know, that notion of being able to be able to test and retest and the things that you've studied there obviously being so important to really inform what, you know, practitioners are doing and really be able to say, you know, what is performance and you know, on that end, in terms of, you know, more specific areas around performance, I mean, I know you've done some work with your groups around dietary nitrates and sodium bicarb, you know, what are some of the, um, particularly around endurance performance? So, you know, can you talk a little bit about uh, the work in dietary nitrates recently? Yeah, so um, we can't, well, we originally, um, 
one of our undergraduate students actually came up with a great idea, which was to do dietary nitrate ingestion prior to resistance exercise performance. We published, we published that a while ago. Um, so that was Scott Mosher's um, first publication. Um, and we showed that if you took three days worth of nitrate prior to doing um, resistance exercise, um, three sets to failure at 65% 1RM, that you can improve the the number of reps, the number and the total amount of weight lifted. So that's quite an interesting kind of a, acute response and acute observation. Uh, Scott became interested in dietary nitrate across the board. I think inspired by Andy Jones's group, really, because they they're, sure. they're kind of the they're the guys that are doing everything on this. <laughs> yeah, looking at Andy Jones. And all to realise he's uh, he's quite uh, quite into beetroot, uh, but but you know uh, Scott then stayed on did a masters with us and uh, and and I think maybe my interest in cycling had rubbed off him a little bit and uh, and he decided that he was quite interested in this idea of of taking a performance criteria which is ecologically valid and I think that's probably some of the other issues that we've got. So you have this idea about uh, measurement. Um, error and, and performance and familiarization of athletes or um, or your participants with a measurement criteria but it still needs to be real world applicable and I think often we we choose these criteria perhaps it not for the right reasons and I think sometimes one of the best ways to get people get to kind of make sure that your participants are are able to kind of uh, replicate their performance is to just choose a performance, one which is ecologically valid, but ties in also with the question that you're trying to answer. The ecological validity means that they're probably more likely to be familiarised with it. So we have used extensively 16.1 kilometre time trials. They're called 10 milers are in the UK, and it's like the standard club distance that everyone rides. Gotcha. Uh, and the reason for that is we can get people to replicate that performance time and time and time again because they're doing it really, really regularly. Um, so, so Scott's work really was to kind of take um, a bout of exercise which might last, you know, a, around an hour, an hour and a quarter. Certainly, we would hope under an hour and a quarter, maybe just over an hour, hour and five, hour and eight minutes, something like that, for a, a reasonable club level athlete. Which we've actually we, we're in a small market town, but there's an awful lot of cyclists in the northwest knocking around. So nice. we've got kind of, we've got a really good pool of athletes that we can uh, that we can call upon, uh, which is quite nice. So Scott was interested in that. He'd seen a couple of studies which had looked at longer distance. So Wilkerson had published a, uh, a paper a couple of years before looking at uh, 80 kilometer time trials. That's 50 miles, uh, and shown that there was no real difference in performance. So he wanted to do a kind of shorter distance version of that. And if you look in that paper, we've, we've plotted the individual responses um, as alongside the mean data. I think lots of studies just do mean data. I quite like the idea of showing what actually is going on with each individual. Absolutely. Uh, and when you've got that look at those individual responses in that, in, in that paper, um, they're all over the place. So even though we've got people who are really familiar with the distance, and even though we've done a control, a placebo, and dietary nitrate and there's no trial order effect we still can't get people to all the time replicate what you know what's going on i think the other thing with nitrate i suppose partly is that if you've got a group of people who really look after themselves then the chances are that their baseline nitrate might 
be reasonably high anyway. Yeah. So unfortunately, in that study, we weren't able to, to measure that prior to or or in response to our supplementation. So I think that's, again, probably one of those sorts of limitations that, that might be potentially problematic. You know, what you... On the one hand, you want really well-trained people who are familiarised and therefore able to replicate their performance time and time again. But then you've also got this idea that it's going to be more difficult within that group to show a performance difference because they're well-adapted uh, anyway. But then the thing with nitrate, I suppose, is if they've got a, 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 a diet which is full of leafy vegetables and beets, then you'll probably not have a great effect anyway. Certainly in that distance, I don't think that, you know, I wouldn't be rushing to, if I got a reasonably balanced diet, I wouldn't be rushing to uh, advise people that that would be the thing to do for a 40 kilometer time trial. And, and Andy, for folks listening in, what was the dose there for the endurance uh, in terms of the amount of nitrates? Yeah, it's six roughly. point, uh, let me just find out, I can't remember. That, and that's the other thing, I guess, is part of the issue when you've got this eclectic mix of things is is you're not reading the same stuff over and over and over again. So it's quite difficult, actually, I'll be honest, to remember everything I've done. So it's quite tricky. Um, so we gave a dose of um, of 12.8 millimoles. So, um, yeah, so 6.4 split across the day twice for three days interesting and is that uh, in terms of the magnitude of the differences you saw with the individuals um you know is there a way to flush out in terms of you know the, the how the athletes responded in terms of their subjective experience to taking it or was it really just a matter of looking at the data to see who actually got the benefit from uh, from taking the beetroot yeah i think that's one of the benefits of uh, potentially look Looking at individual responses, because for, particularly in nutrition, because some people will respond well to things and others won't. And so, you know, if it works for one person, even if it's almost a placebo effect, then, well, the placebo effect's called an effect for a reason in that it might have some value. So, you know, I think um, I think the, the kind of uh, the important thing here really is if you were to tr kind of try this, would be have a go at taking it in practice. And I think often people will take these things prior to a competition without actually trying it. For sure. In practice. And so the thing to do is obviously have a go and see and see if it if, if it makes you feel better when you, when you do it. And is your performance time improved? Well, if you said to a club athlete, you know, if you take this for three days beforehand, you'll knock six seconds off your PB. They'll probably, you know, they'll be delighted with that. But the reality is, does that mean that we have the ability to measure that as a meaningful difference in performance? I think they're two different questions, really. Yeah. Um, and you, so, it, you know, go on, sorry. I was going to say, you touched on something there around just the, the quality of the diet of the athlete. And um, it's, it's something that I've noticed um, anecdotally in clients in terms of, you know, athletes who are on more of a processed food diet for for lack of a better term you know a lot of basketball players or football players often the younger ones or you know their diets aren't exactly uh you know super compelling in terms of what they're having in terms of variety and quality and and, and those athletes seem to be getting a, a you know a better potential benefit from the dietary nitrates is that you know is that something that could be a potential benefit if we have if we have athletes or practitioners have athletes who are you know, don't have a very diverse diet. We're not eating all the leafy greens that, 
you know, theoretically, maybe there could be a potential bigger benefit for those individuals. I think I think you're right. I think um, th- there's more room to, for potential improvement because they're starting off at a more disadvantaged uh, baseline position. Uh, and I guess that's partly some of the, the some of the issues there are, you know, us as researchers, we don't always have uh, the resources just to measure everything that we'd like. Oh, for sure. So sometimes, sometimes you have to kind of read between the lines. Um, Absolutely. But if, you look, but if you look at kind of diet quality, um, certainly in those younger athletes, sometimes it's the athletes that live at home as well. So you see this in in in, in footballers in particular in in Europe, where they have like an academy system. But even in an academy system, you you might well only be able to control two out of possibly two, maybe even what. Uh, only one of the meals that they have a day, even if they're in a full-time um, academy. So if you can only control one meal, then your issue is uh, and your issue is uh, that of edu- education of the player. But then also, if it's quite a young player, they're going to be supplied with their food by, you know, usually their, 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 their home uh, situation. So maybe the mum or, you know, whoever is putting meals on the table for sure so it's not just about educating the player is it it's about educating the people providing the food for the player sometimes it's there are obviously major cultural differences as well so depending on what you know the environment and the geographical location that might have a massive impact on on the quality of what food people are actually consuming even when they know they shouldn't be consuming various things if it's presented to them at regular times then they're probably going to eat it anyway yeah, that's absolutely. And it, you can even go a step further with, you know, if the parents have a certain condition in their background, then they're more or less likely to eat certain foods. And yeah, it's amazing how environment is such a huge, uh, huge factor in this. And it's, it's, it's obviously not very easily controlled, is it? No, no, I think the, the, the kind of the real, the real, uh, really the only way to kind of resolve these sorts of issues, sometimes experimentally, I mean, your ideal recruit for a, um, for uh, these sorts of studies is military recruits because they're in such a controlled environment. You can quantify quite easily exactly the activities they're doing and you can very, very closely monitor their nutritional intakes. But in free living individuals, it's very, very difficult. So really, you, you know, it's almost less than one in sports nutrition. It's how do we measure these things and also, why is why is body composition such a vital tool for 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 us to ensure that energy balance is appropriate in the long term? I think if you look at loads of data, especially in football, uh, sorry, soccer, I guess. Um, <laughs> if you look at, North American you look, listeners appreciate that. <laughs> yeah. Um, so if you look at in that sort of an environment, uh, and you get things like fixture congestion, for instance. Uh, or you look at things like the Tour de France, there's going to be periods where the expenditure is far outweighing intake. Uh, but from a health perspective, our issue is not those kind of acute responses. It's the long-term change and ensuring that in the long term, you, you kind of have a balance. And, it, and, kind of it, and making sure that in the, in, the, in the short term, you kind of acknowledge that there's probably going to be some periods where there are in that sort of energy deficit yeah i mean and particularly in terms of endurance sport i mean it's obviously so important in terms of the power to weight ratios and etc so you know if we, if we continue down this line of, of 
talking about you know the marginal gains around potential supplements. I mean, I know you've done some work around sodium bicarbonate, which is another tried and tested supplement that's shown benefit and endurance. And you know, recent conversations I had with Prof. Stu Phillips around the IOC's uh, recent um, uh, position stand there uh, around supplements for for performance, obviously. Sodium bicarb included in the list uh, yet again, and you looked at a novel ingestion strategy or your group, you know, a delayed release form of sodium bicarb. Can you tell listeners a little bit more about why why the delayed release form and and what you found in the crossover study? Yeah, it's again, it's from a research um, interest perspective. It's again, it's one of those chance happenings. Uh, so I was at Edge Hill for about three or four years, and then Lars McNaughton turned up. <laughs> so he became one of my colleagues and obviously he was one of the people to really champion this as a performance um, supplement way back in you know the, the mid 80s um, and he often says to me if you'd have told me that I you know that 20 years ago that I'd still be doing this in nearly 2020 he said I, just, I would have just laughed at you but there's so many other studies that we we have both planned and also that 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 we, we you know we we uh, we are currently trying to trawl through. Um, I think if I remember back to my undergraduate days, because um, at the time um, one of my lecturers at uni was Don McLaren, and he he had done some stuff on bicarb and sodium citrate, um, and so I was kind of. Uh, drip fed some of this information really early on i never thought i would revisit it but but it's a it, it it's really interesting because we find that using this technique of personalizing the dose so what what we've developed is this method of of initially giving a dose of bicarb and then working out individualized times to peak alkalinity so that instead of just so instead of just giving a dose to somebody and going well We'll give it at about 65 minutes or 90 minutes or 180 minutes, depending on the delivery method. Um, we have worked out that actually the variability between individuals is vast. So we the, the, the shortest time to peak we've measured is 10 minutes. Wow. That might be an outlier. <laughs> yeah. Pretty impressive. It, it might be an outlier. Um, it, that's only happened once, but we have had people repeatedly at 20 and 15 minutes. Okay. So if they're then taking this supplement 90 minutes before they do their performance, there's a good chance they'll be missing when it's going to have its peak effect by quite a considerable margin. But to be fair, though, that is one of the things we, we're not sure about is how long can you leave it? So that's something that we're currently uh, working on. So what's the, win- the the window of peak ergogenicity? That's what we're, we're interested in. And is, um, there, is there a guesstimate, Andy, in terms of what it might be then at the moment? <clears throat> or? Well, what's really interesting is that if you cobble together everyone's data, they typically, depending on how you give it to them, so if it's a solution, it typically will cause alkalinity much more quickly than if you give it in a gelatin capsule. Um, And if you give it in delayed release caps, then the time to peak changes quite considerably. Um, So we've done quite a number of these sorts of experiments. We have another 
paper under review. Uh, I won't spoil what that's going to be like because I, I go against trouble for ruining the peer review. <laughs> no worries. So, um, but um, leave but listeners look- on the edge of their seats. This is good. Yeah, but they'll. Uh, but I think one of the key things that we're you know really interested in is going back to the original, um, the original kind of caveat of oh well, it might make you do your performance whatever the performance criteria is. It might make you quicker at doing it or more powerful or whatever it is, but you'll have some very nasty side effects. Yeah, <clears throat> and everyone knows what that. That is, you know, everyone in our field, most athletes of any sort of high intensity, medium sort of uh, middle distance type uh, performance durations, they all know the potential hazards of taking bicarb. Uh, and so what we're really after and what we're trying to champion is, is that if you've got kind of a 10 out of 10 rating for the severity of your gastrointestinal upset, irrespective of how you deliver bicarb, it's probably not for you. <laughs> yeah very well very well said <laughs> it's not gonna be, because it's going to end up being ergolytic so we we published a paper not so long ago where we gave people um 0.3 milligrams per kilo bicarb um sorry 0.3 grams per kilo uh, of bicarb and uh and then we made them do um, a three minute all out test at altitude well, simulated hypoxia anyway, uh, which was very unpleasant as a participant, I'll be honest, because I was one of them. Uh, and I'm the, <laughs> nice. participant who, I'm the participant who who is extremely hampered by taking bicarbonate or sodium bicarb. I cannot get on with it at all. Oh, no. Um, and so when you look at the data of the individual responses, I am the person whose performance goes in the opposite direction in that paper. Uh, I probably shouldn't identify participants, but I'm quite happy to in that. <laughs> identify yourself. There you go. But when you deliver it in different formats, so one of our one of our rationales really for that study was to try and limit the GI, because if we can limit the GI, then we can open this up as a as a potential um, ergogenic to a far wider audience, and that's Absolutely. essentially what we've, we've seen. With you know, when you give. When you when you give these sorts of delayed release um, capsules, the idea is that it bypasses the stomach, and most of the bicarb is then released into the intestine rather than the stomach. So when it enters the stomach, you get CO two production. Uh, when it reacts with the stomach acid, and so what happens then is you just get bloating and you feel awful. And mm-hmm. in ex- cases, we know exactly what's going to happen there. Uh, but if you can bypass the stomach, then you you don't feel as bad. Uh, and you still get the the same amount of bicarb essentially being delivered. Arguably, you might even get more delivered um, when it's tipped. Essentially, it's like a gastric bypass, if you want to use that expression. Yeah, uh, there you go, right? This is, Brian Saunders' group um, in, in Sao Paulo have um, have used that 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 phrase uh, in in one of the studies they published, um, I think, a year before last. Where they where they tried to essentially do that and showed reductions in GI responses. So you know we we've been tra- trying to use these sorts of responses and compared them to when you give it just as a solution. When you give it as a solution as well, it tastes horrendous. So you know there's n- there's no type of fruit juice w- that will gloss over the fact that it feels like you're drinking the ocean. It's hard to hide it, right? It's very difficult. 
Uh, we often, when we do those things, we often um, will sodium match them for taste so that when we give a control, uh, we're at least giving sodium so it tastes similar, <clears throat> um, which in itself, obviously, potentially, in some instances, can be can be ergogenic. Um, but when we when we look down um, down the list of kind of the severities of GI responses, you know, when we give the delayed release capsule form, admittedly, people are taking maybe 25, 35 capsules in one go, which again puts some people off. Depending on, on their weight, because it's all done with body mass. Yeah. Um, you might go from a 10 to maybe a 5 out of 10 in some instances. Or in some instances, people are going from 10 out of 10 uh, with severe diarrhea to no diarrhea, a bit of belching, and a 3 out of 10 on, the G, on our GIS scale. So then all of a sudden, there's the possibility of people opening their eyes to this again and revisiting it as a potential ergogenic aid. Um, what's interesting as well, I've got some anecdotal evidence to suggest that, that in pro cycling, they're actually using this up for any time trials that are up to an hour. Interesting. Which is really interesting because most of the studies say that actually when you go past, you know, sort of half an hour, you're probably not going to show any difference. And again, that might well be because we're refining our performance criteria a bit. We're controlling experiments better. Uh, and also it makes sense, you know, when when you look at riders who... Uh, who do time trials you know even when you do an hour there's a good chance your your blood lactate concentrations are going to be 10 12 15 at the end because in that last quartile of it you're going to be absolutely flying if you've got anything left so in that instance you know it makes sense that 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 bicarb may well have a role to play if there's enough left and that's the other issue you know if the exercise is too long, you might well have used most of it. Absolutely. And Andy, for those who aren't as familiar in terms of a performance benefit, you know, what kind of percentage are we, are we talking about here in, in elite and then maybe just in recreational, if there's a, a difference there? Yeah, I mean, it, it very much depends on the performance type um, and it depends on, on the athlete type as well. Um, but, you know, we're talking potentially 3 4% potentially, you know in a 4k time trial in a well-trained individual which is fairly substantial absolutely yeah i mean it's definitely one of those things as you mentioned if you can get the the gi issues um reduced especially by 50 percent or more i mean it, it does become a lot more compelling doesn't it it does because that's the instant thing that's going to put everybody off the, the only problem we've got is that delivering it in these uh, in these sorts of capsules is at the moment quite expensive to do uh, so the, some of the capsules, depending on the on, on the on the uh, on the coating on them, um, can be between you know one and two euro fifty each. So if you're a fairly heavy track rider, for instance, and you're maybe 75, 80, 90 kilos, and you're taking a you know, a, a fairly substantial dose. You might be taking 25 to maybe 35 or maybe even 40 um, of these capsules. And if they're going to cost you, you know, two euro each, it doesn't become a, a practical or feasible method. So that's, again, some of the things that we're trying to work on is how can we use this principle to deliver this, but also reduce some of the GI, but it not cost an absolute fortune to do it. That might be all right for, 
you know, Team Ineos who've got a few quid. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But the reality is that for the people that this can have the most impact on, the club rider doing a 10-miler, you know, I get I do get people ask me all the time who are riding these events, can we have some of these capsules or can we have some of, you know, uh, can we can we get access to kind of the time to peak so we can know what time to take it before our time trial all this sort of stuff and I think that's part of the other thing is if you look back at some of the meta-analyses and it, Amelia Carr did a, a, a meta-analysis 2011 I think it was uh, looking at the overall effectiveness of, uh, of bicarb as a, an ergogenic aid uh, and it you know it doesn't say that it's actually that ergogenic and in some studies it's not ergogenic at all mm-hmm. um, so again we come back to that individual variability a bit but then we also come back to the fact that if everyone's giving a standardized time dose and not using the individualized time to peak then in some of those individuals that window might well have been missed so we haven't published much at the moment in terms of the effect of that individualization on on performance so lewis goff has published a few things on four kilometer time trial um sanjoy deb has uh, published a few bits and pieces on um, on really intense high intensity exercise with with some um, hypoxic um, environment stuff as well uh, and, and in our lab we typically see that the performance improvements using the strategy are a bit higher than we might normally expect and certainly they're higher than are published in in the literature and Andy, so how, think, how far off might we be then for somebody to actually have this test performed on them in terms of a recreational athlete does that uh still quite a ways down the road in terms of getting into a lab and doing this or is there a way of might there be a way soon of of being able to nail down that personalized dose yeah so that's a really interesting question because you know we're back to that idea that when you know when you're if you're a really super keen recreational athlete that you're willing to pay you know a consultant fee to the local university to do a vo2 max or a lactate threshold and we're in the same the same realms Uh, and the issue is that at present you either need an ISTAT, which we know that you know that, that some of the cycling teams are using to, to measure this, um, or you need a radiometer, and the radiometers are not cheap, and neither are the consumables. So it becomes quite again inhibitively expensive to tailor make this um, to to happen at exactly the right time for each individual. So that's one of the other areas that we're trying to explore, which is how do we make this. How do we make this commercially available mm-hmm. at a very price? Or even, you know, can can we make this so that people can test this themselves? Yeah, it's a fascinating, um, so that's fascinating question for sure. I mean, it's uh, especially in something that's definitely does work and we know it works. It's just a matter of, uh, yeah, that tolerability and uh, getting, getting folks to, to use it. And if we shift gears here a little bit, Andy, to some of the work that you've done in ultra endurance athletes so longer longer bouts here and, and shifting over from supplementation to that third, uh, food first approach there the fueling practices in ultra endurance athletes and i believe your group looked at yeah. over about 100 participants so can you tell us a bit about what the impetus was for this work and, and what were some of the key findings okay so this was again another one of my phd students uh, claire uh, was Lindsay now blenna hassett so she um she was interested, she's an ultra runner, um, and so she was interested in kind of trying to work out whether or not people were able to understand really what the requirements were from a, a nutrition perspective. Did they really understand 
what it was that they needed to do from a from a nutrition strategy perspective to to fuel properly recover from um and so she set about trying to kind of uh, come up with a couple of adapted questionnaires and validate those questionnaires in order to do that so we we took a pre-existing questionnaire and adapted it and uh, and and validated it in this sort of, um in this population one of the things that's actually hidden in one of those papers, which is quite interesting, was that we assessed diet, uh, sports nutrition knowledge, and what we what we found what we found was that, that the ultra endurance athletes' knowledge was slightly better than registered dietitians. Wow! And we haven't publicised that too too much because we've probably upset some registered dietitians. But but that was the reality that that we compared the. The, the, the dietitians also to center registered individuals so have you heard of the center registration yeah absolutely yeah so so we, we we recruited a few of those uh those people to kind of fill in um fill in our questionnaire and see what their knowledge was like in this context and their knowledge was better than the dietitians as well which is quite interesting um so absolutely. i would quite you know it's quite a good thing i think it's it, it makes sense as well that, that, that that's the case but actually some of the some of the, the the knowledge from the from the athletes themselves is quite interesting it and these studies come at a time where where the high fat agenda if you want to call it that um you know anybody that anybody that engages with with twitter at all will be more than aware yeah, it's of, a uh, pol- of polarized world out there isn't it <laughs> yeah i think there's far too many people who can't see the other side of uh, of the of the argument and uh, i think and all the gray in between right well it's all gray really <laughs> exactly <isn't> it? <laughs> it's all dis- dis- slightly different shades of gray yeah um i think that i think well that it kind of makes me laugh at times i think most people take these things completely out of context and uh uh, and no one size fits all. You know, I tell my undergraduate students that in nutrition, one size fits one. Nice, I like that. <laughs> it doesn't fit everyone. And unfortunately, when you work with a with a you know either a recreational or a general population from a health perspective, they want this. You know, they want this magic, uh, extremely simple to understand uh, solution to all of their nutritional and bio chemical ills and the reality is that that we know that that's not going to happen without quite a bit of effort um for because sure. we give this kind of very generic information for people uh, when the physical and um, metabolic state of each of them and you know what their habitual activities are like when they're so varied you, you just can't give out this this information as far as i can see um as a one size fits all it just doesn't work um and i think you only have to look at the general population in terms of amount of physical activity they do the type of quality of their diets and also the the let the, the sheer level of non-communicable with diseases in 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 developed countries i think we've we've got that kind of one size fits all very very wrong because nobody follows any of the guidance anyway yeah got off topic slightly no no for sure yeah and back you know circling back to the ultra endurance was there any trends there that you guys picked up on in terms of the fueling practices yeah, so um, quite a number of them know what what they're doing, and I think we've done a couple of studies, which again we're, we're in the process of going through. Oddly enough, tomorrow I'm doing some some bloods um, on some of this stuff from some some of these studies that we've done. Um, 
I guess that the kind of some of the issues are that that some of these athletes at the time we did these questionnaires, some of them were following vegetarian and vegan, which is fine mm-hmm. from a you know a, 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 an ethical moral perspective. There's no issues there so long as you know what you're doing. Yeah, uh, there's quite a number of them who, who were paleo and or high fat. I'll I'll, I'll put. I'll be naughty and put those two together because for me they're not high carbohydrate or or they don't have a particular preference. Yeah. So you know we found over twenty percent of people at the time were were in that camp, and I think anecdotally, I think there's quite a number of ultra endurance athletes who are messing with with high fat and very very low carbohydrate diets, and that's fine. So long as one, it works for them. Two, they've measured themselves accurately against when they're on a high carb diet, and I don't think anybody really does that because they just don't. They just go, well, I've lost a load of fat mass and I feel better, so therefore I must be better on this high fat, low carb diet. Mm-hmm. Which is fine if they had some some timber to lose in the first place. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, for sure. From a very lean perspective, it's probably not going to help you too much. Um, and also, if you're exercising for 24 hours uh, at 50% of max, then that's very different to, uh, to if you're working for six or eight hours and you're working at 75% max. You know, the, the, the two things are not the same. I think that's we come back to that oversimplification of, well, this diet works for me. Well, it, it might do, but it just very very much depends on the actual nature and intensity and the duration of the activity. Yeah, we context it. is so key, right? Yeah, and with ultras as well, defining what ultra endurance exercise is, it, it is quite a difficult thing to do because everyone's got their own interpretation of what that is. Uh, and so when you t- when you look at kind of, we did a study not not too too long ago with Jamie Pugh looking at um, probiotics and marathon performance. So if you take marathon as the kind of minimum distance and anything over that is ultra endurance, well, that's one definition, isn't it? You know, an ultra endurance event is anything bigger than a marathon. Okay, that's fine. Yeah. But then there's other people that will say anything over four hours. Well, that's definitely ultra endurance. But, you know, how many people do a marathon recreation? <laughs> yeah, that would, uh, would all be ultras for most recreational r- runners. Yeah, so at the polar ends of marathon, even marathon performance, you've got some people who are in the low two hours, and then you've got people who are at six hours. Well, the demands there are massively different from a time perspective, but ultimately those people who are in six hours are actually, arguably, they might actually do, do, be doing ultra-endurance exercise. So, because just because of the length, sheer length of time that they're active. Oh, yeah. Because of... Uh, because of the distance that they're covering. And yeah. so the fueling needs are obviously completely different. Definitely. I mean, I'm and always amazed that, at how that, some of the elite coaches as well, I mean, obviously don't have their runners run for longer than two and a half, three hours for any of these events. And as you mentioned, recreational marathoners are doing you know, lots of training sessions over that time. So it, it really is a, a totally different, almost is more like ultra marathoning for a lot of these folks. That's it. Yeah, yeah very much so. I think... Um, yeah, if you if you kind of look at um, at some of the the data, which is um, I think it was Andy Jones at a conference. I saw a sneaky little uh, snippet of a slide from a, uh, and it was about Eliab Chichogi's um, preparation prior to um, breaking two. Yeah, uh, and uh, and obviously he's he's running exceptionally fast. 
exceptionally fast, but um, you know he's he's not actually exercising for all that long in, in his preparation for that. Uh, if you look at the data that Andy uh, Jones has uh, has previously kind of shown various people, so you might have one long runner in 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 the weeks in some of in, in some of those weeks, but you know uh, the reality is that. That measuring distance is is probably not that uh, sorry not measuring distance but looking at the kind of the time duration is probably a bit more important for a, 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 a runner who's going really really quick. Yeah, for sure. Because the demands for a slower runner, even though they're covering you know similar sort of difference distance, is, is very different. That's yeah, it's fascinating stuff. And and if we zoom back out, you know, you mentioned being more of a generalist in this sort of specialist world. And before the interview here, we talked a little bit about some of the, the challenges um, of, of assessing performance in, um, in a research setting, in a lab setting. Could you, you know, talk about if, if, you know, a few things, challenges that come up when you're running you know, studies with, with recreational athletes, elite athletes, and some of the things that you're trying to control for? Yeah, so I think everyone has this kind of... Uh, perfect idea of how they're going to run their study and exactly what they want their participants to do uh, and I think that part of our issue as, as a field really is, is is to measure performance well and uh, and that's a very difficult thing to do very well uh, and we go back to this term free living participants mm-hmm. so in this environment where you can't control everything because people aren't supervised all of the time prior to when they come to the lab we have to make these sorts of assumptions that they're going to follow the things that we want them to do. Um, and the odd time where you, you kind of look at some of the data and you go, I'm not convinced that they've actually listened to me this time round. You can then obviously say, okay, well, how come you were so much worse this time round once they've finished all their trials? Cause you don't want to give any of the performance data away until they've done everything. Mm-hmm. And at that point, you know, sometimes you'll say, they'll say, oh, well, that week I decided that I would have a bit of a run the day before and I was a bit tired still. Uh, and whilst, whilst people might follow the instructions and, you know, they'll be in the informed consent information and you'll have briefed them prior to it and, and, and reinforce that on every visit. The reality is that, you know, you have to be very, you have to kind of uh, take people at the word that they're going to do that. So that can kind of put a bit of a, a fly in the ointment for our ability to kind of look at very what is often very small performance improvements uh, and it's quite tricky to, to measure those things um, the other thing is um, is that that often we make this assumption that that people are fully familiarized with trials uh, and you know I'm guilty of it myself in some of some of my earlier papers certainly where we say the participant was familiarized what we mean in that instance is that they did one trial prior to when you then started measuring their performance. Um, now, you can get around that slightly because you can get really well-trained individuals doing a, a protocol For which sure. is entirely what they're used to doing mm-hmm. and entirely ecologically valid, which is why we typically go for, you know, in a cycling context, four-kilometer time trial because uh, track riders do that all the time. We go for 16-kilometer time trial, 16 one, it's 10 miles because it's the most popular distance in the UK, certainly, uh, for a club rider to do a time trial on. Or we do 
25 miles or 40 kilometers because they also used to doing those we've got quite a few people knocking around the place who also do 100 milers and things but but that's a completely different kettle of fish that you can't get enough people to often to do those sorts of distances and again the the test retest reliability of those sometimes is so great that it's difficult to spot small differences so so that's really our challenge is to try and really familiarize people use ecologically valid tests as much as possible um, try and at least interpret the data that we get within what we know know about the test retest reliability of that test and sometimes people don't do that either i've seen that you know, you know working with, uh, with with people many years ago in in, um, in elite football you know so you get people who say okay well in pre-season we 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 use the you know 50 30 20 meter shuttle test to look at sprint performance in our in our footballers and, and of course the first week back after pre-season uh, at pre-season they don't try very hard and then a week before the the the, the, the season starts miraculously <laughs> it's going up pretty good on the second one so that's another issue i guess and and then the other thing i suppose is it in that sort of a regard is um, is that you've got to try and kind of really brief people properly um, I've seen a few we've withdrawn people quite consistently from trials where where they don't fully understand you know this doesn't happen with well really well trained people but active individuals if you're using them they really don't in the first few trials understand what eyeballs out really means as fast <laughs> as you possibly can do it means and i guess that comes back to this idea of familiarization but also uh, it comes back to that idea of them having that pacing schema they know how they're going to pace themselves before they start they know what it feels like they know what 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 are each of those sorts of uh, mental time points or distances during the trial what they should feel like what they're able to put up with and i think that's all part of that that um that idea of making sure that you've got people who are really able to replicate that performance and i think um, we're definitely getting better at it there's no doubt about it absolutely Again, the, other thing, the other thing you've got to consider is how long is my the start of my first trial and how many weeks is it till i can get everyone through each of the trials uh, and we know that there's going to be some performance replication drift in terms of the CVs of these things between, you know, week one to week two to week three to week four, unless they're regularly doing them. Uh, so if you've got like a four week long uh, ingestion period on a trial, then you're going to have worse test retest reliability. If there's four weeks between the trials then you will, if they're doing it one week apart. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, we often have to kind of take a step back when we interpret some of these data and, and say, yeah, but we need to really uh, use the stats as a tool to to kind of interpret the data, but then work out whether or not it's actually a meaningful change with respect to the test-retest reliability. And I don't think that many, not enough people do that. I think we should all be doing it. And certainly from a practitioner's perspective, that's exactly what we should be doing. So going back to our footballers, they're doing their 20-meter trial, they improved by 0.01 of a second, and 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 you know the the sports science intern goes, oh, you've got better, but have you really? Probably not, because the error of associated with the test is so large that you have to really 
work out whether or not you're doing a test which is useful in the first place but also can we make a meaningful inference from from the uh, result that we've got in respect to the test retest reliability I mean, that's a great insight and it dovetails into my last question for you here which is effectively with your diverse background looking at team sports you know which is an area that i focus on whether it's football basketball you know rugby whatever it might be what are you know obviously the test retest is a huge huge hugely important area and as you mentioned are you asking the right question are there when you look across some of these sports you know what are some things that jump out to you as areas that could be that still need to be examined or where there's you know still marginal gains to be had um i think bottom line um we probably if it, it, too many people take too many supplements when most of them probably don't work Nice. <laughs> um, and also the vast majority of them you probably don't need to t- take so long as you get your nutrition right in the first place so i think education is a really important factor particularly with the young athlete especially if they're living Absolutely. at home it's not just about what the team tells the athlete to do the athlete also needs to understand what why they're doing that uh, they need to work in usable, friendly units and portion sizes, not percentages of anything. Uh, all, all bespoke grams per kilo units, much, much more sensible, much easier to follow. Uh, and then also, you know, if they're, wor- if they're a fairly young athlete, well, if you look at the UK now, uh, unless you're a very well-paid athlete, you're probably going to be living at home for quite a considerable length of time. So if that happens... And your food is being provided by, you know, your home unit, your your home environment. Then, then some education about what types of food you need and when you need it to the person providing you with the food. If you're not cooking yourself, that's also really important. Um, and I think, I think that's something that probably probably they they've started to look at certainly in in academy systems in in football, but probably only at the elite. End. Uh, and if you look at the total number of people who are in the lower leagues and are in those sorts of systems, you know, my son's what seven, and some of his mates are in the academy system already, seven and eight wow. year olds, um, which is for me a little extreme. Um, but, <laughs> yeah, for sure. Uh, and then you know, and you you've got that sort of situation where they're expecting players even at that age to perform well. But the kids, obviously, are, anybody with kids will realise it's quite tricky when I work in this sort of field. It's quite embarrassing when you go out for a meal with kids because no matter what you do or what your background is, you still can't get them to eat the things you want them to eat. <laughs> Especially if they're your kids, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. You just think, oh, no, I hope no one sees me. Um, but the reality is, you know, that, that the kids are probably not eating the things they, they should. We, we know that from some of the survey work with footballers and team sports that, that they – there's a high chance that a good proportion of them under report that might well have an impact on our interpretation of that data but we also know that we also know that quite a number of them don't hit the targets for carbs for instance they don't hit the targets for for energy intake compared to their energy expenditure they often in team sports will hit the protein requirements but at the expense of all the other things mm-hmm. <laughs> probably should be because and, and again that probably comes down to kind of 20 years of sports nutrition marketing that that protein shakes the best thing to do there you go Uh, and well they might be convenient but why aren't you eating real food in order to hit those targets 
Absolutely. Yeah, very well said. And uh, Andy, I definitely appreciate you carving out some time here today, sharing your insights. Uh, you know, really fascinating. And, you know, where can people stay connected with you and keep up with all your tremendous research? Uh, so um, the Edge Hill website has, has got my um, face for radio on it. And um, and also um, and also um, I've got Twitter feed which is um, which is Sparks underscore Andy. So I'll uh, you, you might be able to put up with the things I tweet about. There's far too much pro cycling on there though. So, so uh, if, you up, if you can put up with that, if you can put up with that, please don't tell me what happened in the tour today because I've not seen the highlights yet. <laughs> no worries. Let's go and watch them. Fantastic. Well, listen, Andy, thanks so much again for covering out the time. And uh, yeah, really appreciate all, all the uh, research and insights you provided. You're welcome. Thanks, man. Thank you for listening to the Dr. Buzz Performance Podcast. If you enjoy the content, please consider subscribing on iTunes, YouTube, or your favorite podcasting platform. Show your support. And it's also a tremendous help to the show and helps us to continue to attract high quality guests. If you haven't heard, my new book, Peak, The New Science of Athletic Performance that is revolutionizing sports, is out. And I'm pleased to announce we actually hit the Amazon bestseller list in Canada and in the U.S. in the sports medicine, physical medicine and rehab, and holistic medicine categories. So you can find out more info on that and the expert insights at athleteevolution.org. That's athleteevolution.org. And of course, you can pick up a copy on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Chapters Indigo, Waterstones, or your local book sellers. Awesome. If you have any questions or want to leave a comment on today's episode, you can reach out on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at Dr. Bubs. And thanks again, folks, for listening, and we'll see you all next week with more expert insights. The Dr. Bubs Performance Podcast endeavors to provide accurate and helpful information to listeners. These podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Dr. Bub's performance podcasts.